Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Faith in Focus here on the Voice of Islam Radio, the program where we like to take an aspect of faith and examine it according to our everyday lives. My name is Samin Rashid Jodri and I'll be your host for today's program, Faith in Focus, where most programs, including this one, are researched and written by their respective hosts. And on today's program, we will be focusing in on the moon, that celestial or heavenly body, a satellite, part of creation, something that has held reverence, awe and wonder for so many people through the millennia and across the world. The moon is one of those constants in our lives individually, as a society and even as a species. No matter where we may be on the planet, as we look up into the night sky, the moon that we see is the same moon that can be seen by others on the other side of the planet. It is the same moon that our forefathers and ancestors have gazed up at, and it continues to evoke feelings of awe and wonder for many. Perhaps it is the mysterious nature of the moon, the way it changes from one day to the next, sometimes in shape, and sometimes, it seems, in size or colour. The moon has long been symbolic to many cultures and faiths, it is no wonder that something that has been visible every night for thousands of years, something so close and yet so far, has conjured up countless myths and legends. Like the sun, it is shared by all of humanity. And though we may now have reached the moon, what was once an impossible task, there is still so much to be discovered about it. Today we aim to explore the moon, look at some of the legends about it, the importance of the moon in different faiths as a symbol, and also as a means to track time by way of the lunar calendar. We will also hear a report on the space missions to the moon and the future of the moon for us, and what that may entail with regards to accessing the moon as a natural resource. We will also be taking a look at the moon as mentioned in Islamic history and literature, and the importance of the moon in Islam. And to do this, I am joined in the studio today by Rashta Nasser and Zakia Bajwa. Rashta is a primary school teacher and a mum of three, and Zakia is a director of her own company and also a mother of three. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to you both. Thank you for being part of Faith in Focus today and our programme on the moon. Assalamu alaikum. alaikum before we begin with looking at the moon in holy scriptures and the importance or significance it has in Islam and other faiths, what is the moon exactly, Rashda? Well, the moon is Earth's only natural satellite. And um, I was reading that about one quarter the diameter of Earth, which if you think about it, it's comparable to the width of Australia. It is the fifth largest satellite in the solar system and larger than any known dwarf planet. The moon is a planetary mass object that formed a differentiated rocky body, making it a satellite planet under the geophysical term. The moon is a planetary mass object that formed a differentiated rocky body, making it a satellite planet under the geophysical definitions of the term. It lacks any significant atmosphere, hydrosphere, or magnetic field. Its surface gravity is about one-sixth of the Earth's compared about 1.62 metres per second squared compared to Earth's 9.8. Jupiter's moon, Io, is the only satellite in the solar system known to have a higher surface gravity and density. So what about the origins of the moon? 
Well, I've looked into this and I understand the moon was formed 100 million years after the creation of the solar system. This has left scientists wondering what was the cause of our planet's satellite to birth if it didn't come from the same events that formed the planets. There are different explanations put forward by scientists and the most prevalent is the giant impact hypothesis. The prevailing theory uh, supported by the scientific community the giant impact hypothesis suggests that the moon formed when an object smashed into early earth like other planets earth formed from the leftover cloud of dust and gas orbiting the young sun the early solar system was a violent place and a number of bodies were created that never made it to full planetary status one of these could have crashed into earth not long after the young planet was created Known as Thea, the Mars-sized body collided with Earth, throwing vaporized chunks of the young planet's crust into space. Gravity bound the ejected particles together, creating a moon that is the largest in the solar system in relation to its host planet. And this sort of formation would explain why the moon is made up predominantly of lighter elements, making it less dense than Earth. The material that formed it came from the crust, while leaving the planet's rocky core untouched. As the material drew together around what was left of Thea's core, it would have centred near Earth's ecliptic plane, the path the sun travels through the sky, which is where the moon orbits today. However, this theory is problematic because most models suggest that more than 60% of the moon should be made up of the material from Thea, but rock samples from the Apollo missions suggest otherwise. I was reading that um, composition-wise, the moon and Earth are actually very similar. Um, yeah, the, my notes here tell us that having studied the isotopes of oxygen in the moon rocks brought to Earth from Apollo astronauts, researchers discover that there's a small difference when compared with Earth rocks. There is another theory on how the moon came about, the co-formation theory. Now, moons can also form at, their sa at the same time as their parent planet, and under such an explanation, gravity would have caused material in the early solar system to draw together at the same time as gravity-bound particles together to form Earth. Such a moon would have a very similar composition to the planet and would explain the moon's present location. However, although Earth and the moon share much of the same material, the moon is much less dense than our planet, which would likely not be the case if both started with the same heavy elements at their core. In 2012, uh, researcher Robin Canute of the Southwest Research Institute in Texas proposed that, uh, that Earth and the Moon formed at the same time when two massive objects, five times the size of Mars, crashed into each other. After colliding, the two similar-sized bodies then re-collided forming an early Earth surrounded by a disk of material that combined to form the Moon. The re-collision and subsequent merger left the two bodies with the similar chemical compositions that are seen today. Mm. And the interior of the Moon is similar in a way to the structure of the Earth. Absolutely right, yeah. Like the Earth, the Moon boasts a crust, mantle and core. Mm -hmm. Deep inside of its interior, the Moon may have a solid iron core surrounded by a softer, somewhat molten liquid iron outer core. The outer core may extend as far out as 310 miles, which is about 500 kilometres, mm -hmm. but the small inner core only makes up about 20% of the Moon, compared to the 50% core of other rocky bodies. Now, 
When we look at the moon, particularly when it is a full moon and we can see clearly the surface of the moon, it isn't smooth. It is obvious that there are craters or crater-like formations on the moon. It seems bumpy, different shades as well, which is why perhaps famously people say the moon is made of cheese or that there is a face in the moon and so on. <laughs> yeah, and reading up on this... Um we see that science confirms that the moon's surface is covered with dead volcanoes, impact craters and lava flows. Now, early scientists thought that the dark stretches of the moon might be oceans, and so they named such features um, mare, which is Latin for seas, maria, when there are more than one. There are oceans of a sort, but rather than water, such bodies are made up of pools of hardened lava. So early in the moon's history, the interior was molten enough to produce volcanoes, and though it quickly cooled and hardened, lava also burst from the crust when large enough asteroids broke through the surface. The moon's surface shows there's plenty of evidence of asteroids, easily seen with a telescope during most moon phases. Early in the solar system's history, all of the planets and moons suffered through a period of heavy bombardment as the last of the large rocks were captured by their gravity and crashed into their surface. On Earth, plate tectonics and erosion covered up much of the evidence from this period, while the atmosphere helped to burn up some of the smaller offenders before they actually hit the surface. But the Moon lacks all three of these clean-up elements, so the history of the solar system is preserved on its surface. Of course, the period of heavy bombardment, which ended about 3.8 billion years ago, wasn't responsible for all the craters on the moon. Large and small asteroids continued to pelt the surface, but at a slower pace, leading to overlapping craters and craters on top of lava flows. So the crust of the moon is made up of a rocky surface covered with regolith. My notes tell us that it is a region of loose and consolidated rock and dust that sits atop a layer of bedrock. As asteroids and meteorites collide with the surface, they blast it into fine pieces that capture imprints, such as Neil Armstrong's famous footprint, in exceptional detail. The crust of the moon is about 38 to 63 miles, or 60 to 100 kilometres thick. The regolith on the surface can be as shallow as 10 feet, three metres in the Maria or as deep as 66 feet, 20 metres in the highlands. Most of the interior of the moon is made up of the lithosphere, which is about 620 miles thick. As this region melted early in the lunar life, it supplied the magma necessary to create lava plains on the surface. However, over time, the magma cooled and solidified, thus ending volcanism on the moon. Thank you. I was listening to a talk about the moon and problems that we face when it comes to the moon as a resource. And it was clear that in this race to the moon and space, there will be or it's already an issue of who is entitled to this potentially great natural resource and how it will be exploited because there may not be strict regulations when it comes to mining the moon, for example, which could lead to more environmental problems in the same way that we see on Earth when it comes to exploitation of natural resources and what that means for Earth as a whole. And the other thing that struck out for me was the issue of um, lunar dust, which I think you've mentioned there, um, Rashta, when you were speaking about um, Neil Armstrong's footprints and how and how that is able to... Um, be seen or be so visible or yeah. so clear 
Um, so this lunar dust is, is a problem and how scientists need to first overcome this if they want to continue long-term successful missions to the moon. Um, so with that, we now go over to Kutsia Ahmed with a report on this subject. Lunar dust. When we think of dust on Earth, we think of a slightly annoying problem that is easily fixed by general cleaning, dusting and a vacuum cleaner or broom. Dust on the moon, however, is something altogether different. On the moon, it is damaging to everything from lunar landers to spacesuits and human lungs if inhaled. Lunar dust is made of minerals that have been pounded by meteoroids. Almost half of it is silicon dioxide glass created by meteoroids hitting the moon, heating up and fusing the silicon topsoil into glass, then breaking it into tiny shards. Those bits of glass remain extremely sharp because they don't get eroded by wind or water as they would on Earth. Dust mitigation has been an issue for NASA since the Apollo mission. When astronauts were entering and exiting the lunar module, Dust got everywhere, clogging the mechanisms and interfering with instruments, causing radiators to overheat. It even tore spacesuits. On Earth, dirt and dust is smoothed out by erosion. Like water running over pebbles or a constant breeze blowing over a field, the particles' rough surfaces are eroded away, making them roundish and relatively easy to deal with. On the moon, the dust is very fine, abrasive and sharp, like tiny pieces of glass, making it more of a dangerous threat than just a simple nuisance. Buzz Aldrin remembers that the lunar dust that soiled suits and equipment during the Apollo 11 mission smelled like burnt charcoal or similar to the ashes that are in a fireplace, especially if you sprinkle a little water on them. Apollo 17's Harrison Jack Schmidt has said, all I can say is that everyone's instant impression of the smell was that of spent gunpowder, not that it was metallic or acrid. Researchers at Stony Brook University exposed human lung and brain cells to lunar dust and found that it killed 90% of the cells, according to a study published in the journal GeoHealth in 2018. The last Apollo spacecraft left the moon on December 14, 1972, bringing Schmidt and Cernan home. Now, NASA officials say they plan to land scientific gear on the moon in 2022, with the possibility of putting astronauts' boots on the lunar surface as soon as 2024 under the Artemis program. Scientists are keen to tackle the problem of lunar dust, especially considering the potential of the moon. Thanks to our exploration of the moon over the past decades, we now know that it is a potentially huge repository of natural wealth. For a start, there appears to be abundant water ice at the moon's south pole, crucial for setting up lunar bases or colonies. There are rare earth metals such as neodymium and lanthanum, which are used in technologies like speakers, smartphones, batteries and camera lenses, and there are plenty of other useful metals such as silicon, titanium and aluminium. What's more, it's thought that the moon's surface has a relatively high concentration of a rare isotope of helium called helium-3, which could be used to power future nuclear fusion reactors. Companies are already drawing up plans to develop the technology to mine the moon. All these discoveries are leading to another moon race, but this time it's not just between the US and the USSR, 
as it was in the 1960s. Instead, many countries such as India and China are involved, as well as private companies such as SpaceX in America and SpaceIL in Israel, all interested in finding a way to build a presence on the moon that will be sustainable over the long term. There is little international law to regulate this endeavour. The Moon Treaty was opened for centuries to sign in 1979. It tried to protect the Moon by calling for it to become the common heritage of mankind. But although the treaty became active in 1984, no major space-faring power has ever signed it, not even the US, UK, Russia, China or Japan. This is largely because common heritage implies shared ownership and the equitable distribution of resources. Proceeds from the sale of any resources mined on the moon would have to be equally distributed around the earth, rather than kept by the country or company that extracted them. The treaty also called for an international body to govern the exploitation of the moon's natural resources. Without such regulation, a winner-takes-all mentality could take hold, leading to a kind of lunar gold rush by the countries and companies that can afford to make the trip. Thank you, Kutsia, for that report. And let's hope that the moon does not get used or exploited or ends up being something that countries fight over. We do have a common heritage after all. Time now for a short break. You have been listening to Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam Radio, where today our topic is the moon. Do stay with us as after the break, we will look into the significance of the moon in culture. You are listening to Faith in Focus. Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Musroor Ahmad has said, Islam is certainly not a patriarchal religion dominated by men. In fact, Islam teaches that in the establishment and development of any nation or community, women play a fundamental and vital role. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Faith in Focus and today's programme, The Moon. The moon has so much cultural significance and holds different meanings for different cultures around the world. It has always been something that people have either associated with something higher or bigger than themselves or something that holds a lot of meaning, perhaps because it is as ancient as the earth itself and has always been known to the human race. So it is natural that mythical tales, stories or associations with the moon have developed since the beginning of time. For the Arabs, at the time of the Holy Prophet of Islam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, the moon was a symbol for their political power and it was the national emblem of the Arabs in the same way that the sun was a symbol for the Persians. So, for example, when Hazrat Aisha, may Allah be pleased with her, who was the wife of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, she had a dream where she saw three moons fall into her apartment. This was actually fulfilled when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, Hazrat Abu Bakr, her father and the first caliph and companion of the Holy Prophet, and Hazrat Umar, the second caliph of Islam and also a companion of the Prophet, may Allah be pleased with them, all these three were buried there 
after they died. There is another account of Hazrat Safiya, who was the daughter of the leader of the Jewish people in Khaybar. She had a dream that she had seen the moon had fallen into her lap. When she mentioned it to her father, he slapped her because he said that it meant that she wanted to marry the leader of the Arabs as the moon was a symbol of Arab political power. And this did come true when she later married the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So we know that it was at that time a symbol of Arab political power. So how can this help to explain the mention of the moon in some parts of the Holy Quran, Zakia, if I come to you? Yes, so the moon is mentioned in various places in the Holy Quran. There is a chapter called Al-Qamr, Qamr being the Arabic word for moon. And this is chapter 54 of the Holy Quran. There's an incident mentioned in the chapter, which we will come to, which is the splitting of the moon, a phenomenon that occurred in the early days of Islam. But first, if I continue on from your point of the moon being symbolic for the Arabs at the time, the first verses of the chapter read, and I have the English translation, In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful, the hour has drawn nigh and the moon is rent asunder. So I would just like to point out here that the word hour in translations of the Holy Quran is written with a capital H. Of course, for our listeners who cannot see the text at this moment as I can. So in light of what you were talking about, with the significance of the moon as political power for the Arabs, particularly at the time of the Holy Prophet, may peace be upon him, the verse could signify the hour of the destruction of their political power with which the disbelieving Arabs had been threatened with in another part of the Holy Quran. In fact, the previous chapter, chapter 53. So this time has now arrived. So we read in Quranic commentary that the hour here could signify one of the earliest battles that the Muslims had to face in their self-defense, the Battle of Badr, in which almost all of the chief leaders of the Quraysh were killed. So the Quraysh, although this was the tribe to which the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he belonged to and was born into, Mm. they largely turned against him. So they became enemies of the Holy Prophet and essentially enemies of Islam. Yeah, precisely. So the verse is actually a prophecy which was fulfilled some eight or nine years later. So if we read commentaries of this verse, we also come to learn that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, has been called illuminating moon in another chapter of the Quran. In this sense of the word, the verse would mean that the Holy Prophet's separation from the Quraysh, the hour of the destruction of their power, would arrive. And it happened likewise. About a year after the migration of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, to Medina, the Battle of Badr was fought, which broke the Quraysh power. Quranic commentary tells us that taking the expression in Shakkal Kamaru, in the sense, the affair has become manifest, the verse would mean that the hour of the destruction of the Quraysh power has arrived, and that now it would become manifest that the Prophet was a true divine messenger. The word Asa'a, besides the Battle of Badr, may apply to the Battle of the Ditch and the Fall of Makkah, as these three events combine to bring about complete and total annihilation of the power of pagan Arabs. So I know that you mentioned in the beginning that there was an important incident which is called the splitting of the moon. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the miracles that is commonly associated with the early days of Islam and the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And for those who may be unaware of the incident, it is recorded that this miracle took place. 
A few non-Muslims or non-believers sought a miracle of the Holy Prophet and he showed them a miracle of the moon breaking into two pieces. So um, what can you tell us about this? Yeah, so this verse and this chapter talks of this very incident of the splitting of the moon. And it's mentioned in this verse that I was talking about, but in the verses after as well. So I will just read out the verses in question. The hour has drawn nigh and the moon is rent asunder. And if they see a sign, they turn away and say, a passing feat of magic. They reject the truth and follow their own fancies. But every decree of God shall certainly come to pass. Um, So to explain this, I thought I would read from the commentary of the Holy Quran. And it says, whether or not splitting of the moon into two parts observable by the naked eye contravened any physical law of nature, it cannot be denied that the event lacks historical evidence which could at all be described as unimpeachable. At the same time, no one can presume to have fathomed all divine mysteries or fully comprehended or encompassed all the secrets of nature. It is not possible to imagine that such an event affecting a considerable area of the globe should have remained unnoticed in the observatories of the world or that it should have remained unrecorded in books of history. But the incident, having found a mention in such reliable collections of hadith as Bukhari and Muslim, and having been narrated successively in traditions of reliable authority and reported by such learned companions of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, as Ibn Masud and Ibn Abbas, does show that some natural phenomenon of unusual importance must have taken place in the time of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Some commentators of the Qur'an, Radhi among them, have sought to solve the difficult problem by declaring the incident to be a lunar eclipse. Imam Ghazali and Shah Wali Allah also hold the view that the moon had not in fact been rent asunder, but that God had so contrived that it appeared to the beholders as such. However, taking into consideration the forceful language in which it has been mentioned in the Qur'an, the incident appears to be something more than a mere lunar eclipse. It indeed constituted a great miracle shown by the Prophet at the insistent demand of disbelievers. It seems to be a vision of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, in which the companions of the Holy Prophet and some of the Quraysh were made to share, just as the rod turning into a serpent was a vision of Moses in which the magicians were made to share. Alternatively, it may be that just as the striking of seawater by Moses with his rod coincided with the ebb of the tide and thus assumed the character of a miracle, because God alone knew when the sea would recede and it was he who commanded Moses to strike the waters at the time of recession. Similarly, God may have commanded the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, to show the miracle of the cleaving asunder of the moon at a time when a heavenly body was to take such a position in front of the moon that it caused the moon to appear to the beholders as split into two parts. Mm. Now, we also know from our hadith or traditions of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that this event did in fact occur. For example, there is a tradition which says, The infidels of Makkah sought a sign from the Holy Prophet, upon which he showed them the moon in two pieces. Thus they saw one piece of the moon to one side of the Hira mountain, and the other piece on the other side. And that's from Bukhari. And again there is another tradition which is related by Abdullah bin Masood, and it reads, We were at Mina with the Holy Prophet, when the moon was rent asunder, upon which the Holy Prophet said, Look and bear witness. One piece of the moon was towards the top of the mountain, 
and the other piece was towards the bottom. And this is also from Bukhari. I was uh, listening to a question and answer session with the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Tahir Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on his soul. And he was asked about this um, natural phenomenon and, and if or how it could occur. And he mentioned that firstly, nothing is beyond the power of God. So for Muslims, God is almighty and nothing is beyond God's power. So if he wanted to split the moon in two, then it could be so. And he explained that certain laws of nature are subordinate to other superior laws of nature. And sometimes we are not aware of what those laws are because we as humans, we only have a limited capacity of understanding. And there are things that we do not understand yet or we did not understand in the past. So even for people who do not believe in God and base their ideas purely on science and scientific discoveries, even such people um, accept that we do not know everything and cannot always explain everything, at least right away. So while I was researching up on this, I found that essentially there are two aspects to the question of the splitting of the moon. Either it was done by God because Allah decides, or it could have been something that collectively the people at the time saw because Allah caused them to see something. So like someone perhaps who has been hypnotized is able to see or perceive things that are there when you and I cannot see it. If this is possible, then it is absolutely possible that an almighty God can do the same and more. And perhaps at that time, there was some sort of supernatural power that overpowered the eyes of the spectators. After all, someone who carries out hypnosis is a human being like you and I, a trained individual who can project images in a mental state. Um, yeah, and also there are many things about the night sky, about stars and constellations, the moon, especially as it is our topic for today, or even things here on Earth that we do not know everything mm. about. We haven't fully comprehended or even our own bodies yet. Mm. There are many diseases that cannot be cured, Many new scientific discoveries that are happening all the time here on Earth about our planet or the world around us. So definitely we can accept that at the moment and at the time of this incident as well, we do not know everything. And as and we as humans cannot explain everything yet. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is why for Muslims, we believe in an almighty God and a God who is all knowing. So we do know that this incident did indeed happen. And it was also a symbol coming back to what you were explaining um, about the moon as a symbol of Arab political power. And this would have been symbolic for the Quraysh and the enemies at the time too, because they would have understood that even though at the time the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him and his companions were on the face of it much weaker than the powerful Quraysh tribe. Uh, so for them, the symbol that their own power would be broken. And in relation to this, they did say that if they if this were to happen, then that in itself was a miracle too. So in terms of the moon splitting as a miracle and what was to come, i.e. the diminishing power of the Quraysh chieftains and enemies of the Prophet in Arabia and the subsequent rise of Islam, these are both miracles. You are listening to Faith in Focus and today's programme on the moon. Time now for a short break. The promised Messiah, peace be on him, said, If sin did not exist the venom of vanity would surge forth within man and lead him to his ruin. But repentance prevents this from happening.
You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back to Faith in Focus on the Voice of Islam Radio and today's program all about the moon. We have just been talking of the moon as mentioned in the Holy Quran and also the incident of the splitting of the moon, one of the miracles that is often said to have been performed by the Holy Prophet of Islam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and whether or how this did actually occur. So moving on now from this incident, the moon appears to be constantly changing because it has phases and takes on different shapes, which we refer to as the waxing and waning of the moon. So, although it is a constant thing in the sky, the shape of it is always changing. Sometimes we have a crescent-like moon, sometimes a half-circle, and then, of course, the full moon. Yes, so um, these different phases of the moon, or what appears to be the phases of the moon, are not because the moon is actually growing and shrinking, of course, but how much of the moon we can see at the particular time. Um, Our moon doesn't shine, it reflects... Just like daytime here on Earth, sunlight illuminates the moon. We just can't always see it. When sunlight hits off the moon's far side, the side we can't see from Earth without the aid of a spacecraft, it is called a new moon. And when sunlight reflects off the near side, we call it a full moon. The rest of the month we see parts of the daytime side of the moon, or phases. I was reading up that these eight phases are in order. So there's new moon, waxing crescent, first quarter, waxing gibbous, full moon, waning gibbous, third quarter, and waning crescent. The cycle repeats once a month or every 29 and a half days. And as you observe the moon during the month, watch as it grows from a new moon to a first quarter moon. As it grows, it's known as a waxing moon and gradually increases from a waxing crescent because of its shape into the first quarter moon. As it continues to brighten, it takes on an oblong or gibbous shape until it reaches the full moon stage. Then it will repeat the steps in reverse as it heads back to a new moon. The moon like Earth is a sphere and it's always half illuminated by the sun. As the moon travels around Earth, we see more or less of the illuminated half. Moon phases describe how much of the moon's disk is illuminated from our perspective. The moon is between Earth and and the Sun, and the side of the moon facing towards us receives no direct sunlight. It's lit only by the dim sunlight reflected from Earth. As the moon moves around Earth, the side we can see gradually becomes more illuminated by direct sunlight. Then we come to the phase of the moon referred to as the first quarter. So, I understand that in the first quarter phase, the moon is 90 degrees away from the sun in the sky and is half illuminated from our point of view. We call it first quarter because the moon has travelled about a quarter of the way around the earth since the new moon. Then we come to the next phase, waxing gibbous. Here the area of illumination continues to increase. More than half of the moon's face appears to to be getting sunlight. After this is the full moon where the moon is 180 degrees away from the sun and is as close as it can be to being fully illuminated by the sun from our perspective. The sun, earth and the moon are aligned, but because the moon's orbit is not exactly in the same plane as Earth's, as Earth's orbit around the sun, 
they rarely form a perfect line. When they do, we have a lunar eclipse as Earth's shadow crosses the Moon's face. And then waning gibbous, more than half of the Moon's face appears to be getting sunlight, but the amount is decreasing. After this is the last quarter. The Moon has moved another quarter of the way around Earth to the third quarter position. The Sun's light is now shining on the other half of the visible face of the Moon. And then we have waning crescent. Less than half of the Moon's face appears to be getting sunlight, and the amount is still decreasing. Finally, the Moon is back to its new Moon starting position. Now the Moon is between Earth and the Sun. Usually, the Moon passes above or below the Sun from our vantage point, but occasionally it passes right in front of the Sun, and we get a solar eclipse. So the different phases of the Moon help us to chart time, which is perhaps why it is used in Islam for this reason too. Yes, so in Islam we have the Islamic calendar, which is a lunar calendar because it is based on the phases of the Moon. This is why the month of Ramadan, for example, does not fall in the same month every year according to the calendar that we use in everyday life, the Gregorian calendar. So when people ask when is Ramadan usually, we cannot give an answer in the same way that we can answer when is Christmas Day, for example. Christmas falls on the 25th of December every year for those who celebrate this as Christmas Day. But Ramadan moves every year because it is based on a different calendar. Mm. So you mentioned, Rashta, that the moon does not emit light itself, but reflects light. Yes. Um, so although we say things commonly, like the moon shines brightly, mm. or we refer to moonlight and so on, in a way this is true because we can see them, that the moon gives off light. Mm. But the light does not actually come from the moon itself. It's not the source of light. Rather, it reflects the light of the sun. The moon shines because its surface reflects light from the sun. And despite the fact that it sometimes seems to shine very brightly, the moon reflects only between 3 and 12% of the sunlight that hits it. Mm. The moon is at its brightest when it's 180 degrees away from the sun from our perspective. Picture the sun, earth and moon in a straight line. At this time, the forehalf of the moon's surface facing the sun is illuminated and is visible from earth. This is what's known as a full moon. At new moon, on the other hand, the moon isn't even visible from our vantage point. And this is when the moon is between the sun and the earth, so that the side of the moon reflecting sunlight is facing away from earth. In the days before and after a new moon, we'll see a sliver of the moon reflecting sunlight. And during those times, the faint brightness of the rest of the moon, the part not brightly lit as a sliver, is a result of what scientists call earthshine in which the Moon's relatively dark disk is slightly illuminated by sunlight that reflects off the Earth, and then off the Moon and back to our eyes. Mm, so interesting. And this is mentioned in the Holy Qur'an too. There is mention of the Moon as a lamp, and also this quality of the Moon that it reflects, Sakia. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So there is a verse in the Holy Qur'an that reads, and I quote, he it is who made the sun radiate a brilliant light and the moon reflects a luster and ordained for it stages that you might know the number of years and the reckoning of time. Allah has not created this but in truth. He details the signs for a people who have knowledge. Chapter 10 verse 6. 
So if we read the commentaries of this verse, we learn that this is linked with the charting of time as well as what I mentioned earlier about the calendars based on the moon. Um, I'll just read a passage from the commentary on this verse, which reads, The verse points to a very wise natural law. We can judge the amount of space traversed by a body only by the change of its position relative to other bodies. So this verse purports to say that God has appointed stages for the sun and the moon that we may be able to make a reckoning of time. In other words, he has caused these heavenly bodies to move and has appointed stages for their motion so that by observing the motion of these bodies, we may be able to know that a certain amount of time has passed and that we have moved on from our original position. All reckoning and all calendars depend on the movements of the sun and the moon. The moon moves around the earth and thereby we are able to know the measure of months. The earth moves around the sun and also rotates on its own axis, thus enabling us to measure our years as well as our days. The Arabic words rendered here as that you might know the number of years and the reckoning of time may also be translated as that you might know the number of years and the principles of mathematics. In fact, all fundamental principles and basic rules of mathematics are based on and derived from the movements of heavenly bodies like the sun and the moon. The verse is also pregnant with a deep spiritual import. Just as in the physical world the sun and the moon enable us to prepare our calendars and make a right estimate of our works and their results, similarly, through the suns and the moons of the spiritual universe, i.e. the prophets, we can measure the value of our labour and its results. Without the prophets of God, there can be no true awakening and no realisation of the spiritual progress made by man, just as without the sun and the moon it would be impossible to form an idea about time or to measure it. The prophets of God are like the sun and the moon in the spiritual world. They reveal the capacity for spiritual progress that lies latent in human nature and make men understand and realise their inborn faculties and capabilities and the limitless field of spiritual progress that lies before them. Without prophets, there could be no real spiritual progress in the world. End quote. Yes, and that is also similar to elsewhere mentioned that the law-bearing prophets are like the sun. Mm -hmm. So does the moon represent a prophet who follows the sharia or law of the law-bearing prophet and who derives all spiritual light and life from him. For example, in chapter 21 of the Holy Quran, where God mentions that the sun and moon have been created and each is gliding in its own orbit. Spiritually speaking, the sun stands for the law-bearing prophets, particularly the holy prophet of Islam, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and the moon for those reformers and prophets who borrow their spiritual light from the law-bearing prophets. And the, the word the day represents the time when a new prophet makes his appearance in the world and fresh revelation comes down from heaven and the night represents that period when there is spiritual darkness all around and no revelation comes from God. Night and day, of course, are important for humans. Night is when we rest and sleep and the day is for those other tasks and work that we need to do in order to live. Mm, yeah, so continuing on from what you were saying, this, I mean, the Quran mentions that the sun and moon have been pressed into service and they run to a certain course or appointed time. And again, if we read the commentaries of these verses, it mentions the spiritual and political rise and decline of the nations as well. Uniform prosperity or unrelieved misery has never been the lot of a people for all time. The condition of a people or individual changes with a corresponding change in their or his attitude and behaviour. 
The natural law of the day following the night and vice versa operates with equal force in regard to the fate of nations as well as individuals. And in another place, the commentary reads, With the advent of the Holy Prophet, a new order will come into being. The nations which have hitherto enjoyed temporal and spiritual sovereignty will, if they rejected his message, be debased and disgraced, and another people which have till now been looked down upon as scum of humanity because of their faith will be raised to the highest pinnacles of power and glory. All the forces of nature will combine to work for the success of the new order and the forces of darkness led by those whom the disbelievers call upon besides Allah will utterly fail to impede or obstruct its progress because the kingdom of the heavens and the earth is God's who has revealed the teaching and who is its protector and guardian. End quote. Yes, um, the Quran mentions how the moon and sun have been created by God. So it points to an intelligent design that there is a designer or creator behind creation that Muslims call Allah. And this did not merely happen by chance. Mm. So coming back to the lunar calendars and the charting of time, because there are a few verses in the Quran that mention this and how the moon is on its course or in orbit. And what I find so fascinating about the Quran is that it clearly mentions the purpose of the moon and the creation of it, as well as, as we have explored already, using the symbolism of it too. And I found it fascinating that Islam uses both the solar and lunar calendars or the sun and the moon to help chart time because, of course, in a time before people commonly owned clocks or watches, it would have been difficult to know when midnight was and when a new day or indeed new month began. But in Islam, we use the movements of the sun which are visible to all to know, for example, when a day starts and ends um, with dawn and dusk which is obvious, and similarly, the phases of the moon to see when a new month begins and when one ends. Now, moving on to something else to do with the moon, we have talked about how the moon was a symbol in Arab culture, but it holds cultural significance in China as well. Here is Kutsia again with a report. Mid-Autumn Festival or Mid-Autumn Day is the second grandest festival in China after the Chinese New Year. It is named so because it is celebrated on the 15th day of the 8th lunar month, which is always in the middle of the autumn season in China. The day is also known as the Moon Festival, as at that time of the year the moon is believed to be at its fullest and brightest, and those who celebrate always worship the moon and appreciate the full moon on that day. The festival originated from the moon worship to celebrate the harvest in the autumn season about 3,000 years ago, about 1,800 to 2,200 years ago, the word mid-autumn started being used to record the festival. Since 1,100 to 1,400 years ago, mooncakes, a rich pastry typically filled with sweet bean, egg yolk, meat or lotus seed paste, have been traditionally eaten during this festival. In the northern Song Dynasty, about 900 to 1,000 years ago, the 15th day of 8th lunar month was finally set as the official festival date. Later, the festival became more and more popular and was celebrated nationwide. In the Gregorian calendar, it usually falls in September or early October. In Chinese culture, the full moon symbolises reunion. 
so at this time those who celebrate reunite with their families for celebrations. They worship the moon together, appreciate the moon together, enjoy reunion dinner and even share one moon cake to celebrate the reunion. Even if a family member is not home, he or she is appreciating the same moon with other families, seeming like they are together. This tradition is 3,000 years old. On the night, people set a table with mooncakes and other sacrifices towards the moon, make wishes, offer incense and kowtow to the moon. Afterwards, the families will share the sacrifices. People in mainland China enjoy one day off on the festival day which is usually connected with the weekend for a three-day holiday. If it falls within October the 1st to the 7th, the holiday will be eight days long, celebrated together with Chinese National Day. In Hong Kong and Macau, people also enjoy one day off. In Taiwan, the one-day holiday falls on the festival day. As the mid-autumn festival was originally derived from the worship of the moon god, many interesting stories and legends are told and spread among folklore, explaining the purpose of the worship. The most famous one is the Changa, flying to the moon. The legend goes like this. Changa's husband, Hoi, was rewarded the elixir of immortality for shooting down the extra nine sons, which tortured people a lot. But he did not want to become immortal alone and leave his wife to live in the heaven. So he gave the elixir to Changa to keep it well. Unfortunately, one of Hui's followers got to know about it. On the 15th day of the 8th lunar month, when Hui went out hunting, that follower sneaked into Hui and Changa's home and forced Changa to hand over the elixir. Unhelpfully, Changa ate the elixir, became an immortal and uncontrollably left the earth for the heaven. As she didn't want to leave her husband, she flew to the moon, the closest place to the earth in the heaven. Hoi, in hope of reunion, presented the mooncakes on every 15th day of the 8th lunar month since then. Making and sharing mooncakes is one of the hallmark traditions of this festival. In Chinese culture, a round shape symbolises completeness and reunion. Thus the sharing and eating of round mooncakes among family members during the week of the festival signifies the completeness and unity of families. In some areas of China, there is a tradition of making mooncakes during the night of the mid-autumn festival. The senior person in that household would cut the mooncakes into pieces and distribute them to each family member, signifying family reunion. In modern times, however, making mooncakes at home has given way to the more popular custom of giving mooncakes to family members, although the meaning of maintaining familial unity remains. Although typical mooncakes can be found a few centimetres in diameter, imperial chefs have made some as large as eight metres in diameter, with its surface pressed with designs of changa, cassia trees or the moon palace. One tradition is to pile 13 mooncakes on top of each other to mimic a pagoda, the number 13 being chosen to represent the 13 months in a full Chinese lunisolar year. The spectacle of making very large mooncakes continues in modern China. Lanterns of all sizes and shapes are carried and displayed, symbolic beacons that light people's path to prosperity and good fortune.
The mid-autumn festival has become popular in other parts of the world, especially neighbouring Asian countries. In addition to some shared customs, they add their own ways of celebration. For instance, in Korea, families also reunite, but their representative festival food is songpyeon, a kind of stuffed rice cake instead of mooncake. In Japan, in addition to worshipping the moon and appreciating the full moon, housewives like to decorate their homes with flowers and pampas grass. In Vietnam, it is more like Children's Day in spite of eating mooncakes. Thank you, Kutsia, for that insight into the Chinese Moon Festival and the importance of the moon in Chinese culture. Many people are drawn to the moon's mystery and charm, so it's not surprising that the celestial body is the theme of many songs, movies, operas, poems and plays. The moon is often associated with romantic affairs. The moon, crescent or full, never fails to trigger people's infinite wonder. That brings us to the end of our programme on the fascinating and majestic moon. We have just enough time to hear from young Alina with a short moral story for children from Tibet around monkeys and the moon. Monkeys and the moon. In long past times, there lived a band of monkeys in a forest. As they rambled about, they saw the reflection of the moon in the well. And the leader of the band said, Oh friends, the moon has fallen into the well. The world is now without a moon. Ought not we to draw it out? The monkeys said, Good, we will draw it out. So they began to hold counsel as to how they were to draw it out. Some of them said, Do not you know? The monkeys must form a chain and so draw the moon out. So they formed a chain, the first monkey hanging on to the branch of a tree, and the second to the first monkey's tail, and the third one in its turn to the tail of the second one. When in this way they were all hanging on to one another, the branch began to bend a good deal. The water became troubled, the reflection of the moon disappeared, the branch broke and all the monkeys fell into the well and were disagreeably damaged. The moral is, when the foolish have a foolish leader, they all go to ruin, like the monkeys which wanted to draw the moon up from the well. Thank you to everyone who was part of today's programme of Faith in Focus, researched and written by its host and produced by Mrs. Shermin Budd for Voice of Islam Radio. Till next time.